thank you for that. If you have your Bibles this morning, we will be in the book of James as we continue to walk through our series looking at the book of James. We're in chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. You'll see today, if you look at the, the screen, the, the, the title of today's sermon is Faith in Works. Faith in Works. What is, oftentimes we think of these things as kind of combative, as if they go against each other. We're saved by faith, not by works. We'll get to that passage. It's in Ephesians chapter 2. But this is one of those passages that sometimes seems to cause problems for people as they read through the Bible. They look at this and they look at Ephesians chapter 2 and well, one seems to be saying one thing and one seems to be saying another. At face value, perhaps people may wonder what it's saying. I think really the distinction we're looking at today is the distinction between having saving faith and a counterfeit faith. A faith that's not really faith at all. It's not saving faith. You know, there's some things in your life that you just want a certain kind of thing, right? If you go to a place and you order, and you're really in the mood for, for a hamburger, and you order a hamburger, there's something that you could be served that might be considered a hamburger but would not be what you were hoping to get. What about this? Perhaps maybe you're one of those people, I know I am, where I think not all bottled water is the same. And so when I want a bottle of water, if someone brings me a certain brand, I won't be very happy about it. I'll be like, well, this isn't what I had in mind. Or maybe you, you, you go to the store and, and you, there's some foods that the off-brand just is not the same. Sometimes it's better, but they're not always equivalent. I don't know if you heard, um, years ago when it happened, there was a, a big scandal, a big ordeal that happened around a company named Theranos. And there's, it's been kind of back in the news with a, a little series that has been, a TV series that's been made about it, about Elizabeth Holmes, who was the founder of this company, that was claimed that they could take a just a, a prick of blood and could diagnose all sorts of different diseases and different things you might have wrong with you. That was the goal, that was the mission of this company. And they raised tons and tons of money. It was, it was a company that was worth over billions of dollars. But when it all came to pass, they found out that it wasn't real. There was nothing there that could do what they were claiming and promising that it could do. It was fake. They presented a good idea and they got a lot of people to invest in this company based on this idea but there wasn't anything behind it it was fake so we look today at this passage i want you to keep this idea in mind a saving faith and a, a counterfeit faith what is the difference as we look at our lives as we look at what god calls us to do and what god calls us to be so we're going to start in verse 14 what good is it my brothers and sisters if someone claims to have faith but does not have works. Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe God is one good, even the, the demons believe, and they shudder. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac his son on the altar? 
you see that faith was active together with his works, and by works faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for this time that we can gather together and we can look at your word and we can see what it says. And God, I pray that as we deal with this passage and all the other scripture related to this passage, that we would be willing to see what your word says to us this morning. We'd be willing to look at our lives and and to, to lay aside what we might think, what we may want to believe, and what we may have in our own minds, but see what your word says truly to us this morning. Father, I pray that you'd be with us today and that we can be people who would seek to follow you wherever you may lead us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So before we get into looking and breaking this down, I want to look at the example that James uses here. It says, If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith if faith, if it doesn't have works, by itself is dead. So what do we see here? A person, a person in the church, a, a brother or sister in Christ, you go up to them and they are, they're lacking food, they don't have clothes that they need, and you say, hey, peace be with you, be well fed, stay warm, see you later. What good is what you've said that person? What good does it do them? Nothing doesn't fill their belly, doesn't keep them warm, just words, right? Just words. And so this is what he's saying, right? So we see the need. There's the poor person. The poor person that has needs, we see the need. We see the be well. That's the intention there. There's an intention from the person in this scenario saying, be well, be well fed. But what do we not see? Any action, any evidence that that intention was real had any weight behind it. James says that faith without works is like this. It's words without any action. And I want to clarify and, and, and make it important as we see this, that James is speaking very specifically in this passage as what he's probably seeing and what he's interacting with. People that are saying, well, I'm saved by faith. That's good enough. What does the Bible say? What does the rest of the Bible say? Because I think a lot of times people think Paul, the apostle, and James disagree on this subject. But I will, as we will look today, we're going to spend some time in this. I do not think at all that they disagree. And James is very specifically addressing an issue that he was seeing. So the key question, really, that we need to ask and we need to answer, what does it mean to be saved? How are we justified before God? Right? We think of the, the verse we love to go to, it's our, it's our famous, popular, most pop, one of the most popular verses, John 3.16. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And here we see this foundation of belief in God as being tied to justification, being made right with God. 
So we're going to look and, t- and spend some time here, and I want you to focus with me through this, because we're going to come back to James and how it applies. But what does the Bible say about justification? First, what is justification? It's a theological term that we use, that, that you hear, about the doctrine about how we're made right with God. How are we saved? Think about in, in our society, if a person were to die at the hand of another, there'd be an investigation to see what happens, and there's a couple outcomes. If it was intentional, with malice, and planned out, well, that's called what? Murder. But what happens if that person was being attacked? It might be declared as justified. They were justified in doing what they, 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 they did. It might be self-defense. And in that situation, you're saying that their actions were justified. They were the right thing. They were made right in the situation. So how are we declared right with God? As people who live our lives, who are sinful in need of salvation, and we'll see that as we go through how it's laid out, how are we declared right with God? Especially knowing that what we have done should declare us as guilty. One of the best places that you can look if you want a really solid theology, if you want to be able to build a bedrock of what you should believe about your salvation, is the book of Romans. So we're going to walk through the first several chapters of Romans, and I'm going to summarize a lot of it, and I'll read a few verses that are applicable. But Paul makes a case for the need of salvation for all people, the way that salvation is provided, and then what happens in a person's life that has been saved. Okay, so in Romans chapter 1 and 2, we see that there's an awareness that all people have an awareness of who God is and of his law. It talks about how even the people who don't know God, not the, the Israelite people, not the Jewish people, they know God and they know his law because of the way that God created the world. And they are responsible for breaking the law and for upholding the law. All people responsible for if they break God's law and they're responsible to uphold his law. Romans 1, 18 through 20. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteous people, unrighteousness of people, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. All people, whether they grew up here, knowing and hearing about God's word, whether they grew up not ever hearing about the God of the Bible, they know that there is a God through what he has made. They know of what he has created. They are all held accountable because of what God has done. They're held accountable for when they break God's law, when they uphold God's law. And I want to encourage you that if, if any of this sounds like it doesn't make sense, go read through the book of Romans, because there's a lot more that we can't cover in this. But what he's saying is that all people are held responsible. But then as we get to the Romans chapter 3, that the law brings about conviction, not justification. Because in Romans 1 through 2, he's talking about all people have to uphold God's law. If they want to be called righteous, they have to follow God's law. Then we get to Romans chapter 3. Here's the bad news. No one does. Not a single person, you, me, other people, we will fail in upholding God's law. Romans 
3, 19 through 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. So this is what we see here, this idea of justification. How are we made right before God? How can we stand before God on judgment day and say, I should be in your kingdom? Romans right here says, by works, no one. If we point to what I did, what, what, look, well, here's what I did in my life. Here's the things I did, the good things I did. By that, not a single person will be justified before God. And really, the law, what it does is reveals to us all of the ways that we break God's law. And we'll get to that as we go further through this. Later in Romans 3, we see the solution. God's righteousness has been revealed apart from the law. Righteousness bought by the blood of Jesus, received by those who have faith in Jesus. Righteousness bought by the blood of Jesus, received by those who have faith in Jesus. Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as the, as the mercy seat by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His restraint God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented Him to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So here we have the answer. How are we justified before God? By having faith in Jesus Christ. Because what we were powerless to do by keeping the law, we were powerless to uphold the law. We fail. Right? We talked about that last week. If you uphold the whole law but fail in one part of it, you're what? Guilty of all of it. And so we're powerless. We're unable to uphold the law. We're unable to please God by what we do because we're sinful and we're fallen. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed where through the blood of Jesus Christ. The sacrifices that they, they had in the Old Testament were a foreshadow pointing to what the blood that would cover sins. The previous sacrifices could never take away the sins of the world, but the, the sacrifice of Jesus would take away the sins of those who would have faith in Jesus Christ. And it says that God will justify the one who has faith in Jesus. God would justify the one who has faith in Jesus. So how are we made right, declared not guilty before God by having faith in Jesus Christ? So we keep going. We can't stop there. That's the important thing. We can't stop there if we want to have a full understanding. Romans 4 uses Abraham as an example the same way James does. Abraham as an example. He was justified by believing what God said. This belief led to his action. Romans 4. Well, actually, we see this in, in Hebrews. Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. By faith, when he was called, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he he was, no, he was going to receive his inheritance. 
he went out even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And this is where an important part that we can't miss. Abraham, in Romans, it says that he's justified by faith. And we see here in Hebrews, talking about the same thing. By faith, when he was called, Abraham did what? He obeyed. So here's where we see this idea of faith and works coming together in harmony. Abraham was justified by what? His faith, his belief in God. But that belief in God did what? It motivated him to obey God. So what is the justification? His faith in God. What did that faith in God do? Caused him to obey God in his life. Because of our faith in Jesus, we move on to Romans chapter 5, because of our faith in Jesus, we have peace with God and are made right with him. Because of Jesus and Jesus alone, we can be saved. Here are some of the verses you probably have heard. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.6, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5.8, but God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the justification comes by faith. But does that mean we should keep living in sin? Does that mean we keep living our lives however we want? Romans chapter 6, we should no longer live as slaves to sin, but should live as those who are following God. And, and he actually says in Romans that we should no longer be slaves to sin, but live as though we are slaves to God. Uses, he, says, he talks about using a human analogy and and talking about that, the fruit we produced led to death. And now the fruit that we produce should lead to sanctification. This is where we become like, become like Christ. Romans 6, 1 through 2. What shall we say then? Should we continue to sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Romans 6, 12. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal, in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. Romans 6.22, but now, since you've been set free from sin and become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in your sanctification. The outcome is eternal life. There's this idea that you're going to be doing something. We're not blobs that do nothing. We're not morally neutral. We're either living to please God or we're living selfishly sinful lives that leads to death. And so if we've been freed from sin, we've been freed from this punishment, this guilt, we shouldn't live that way any longer, but now we live lives that seek to please God, that, that produce fruit that leads to, to our sanctification, and the outcome is eternal life. But remembering, the, the justification comes from faith in Christ. Romans 7 says, we've died, at the beginning says, we've died to sin and are released from its bondage so we may serve God. Romans 7, 5 through 6. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the, law, through the law were working in us to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that now we may serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the old letter of the law. The law showed us what sin was so we might understand our own sinfulness and turn to God. We will still struggle with sin in this life, but because of Christ, we are not enslaved to it. Romans 7, 7, what should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. 
but I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. And I have to tell you a story on myself. Fairly new, I mean, obviously to the area, right? And, and so some of the speed limit signs and speed limits on roads I was a little unfamiliar with. Um, for some reason, I had in my head that the, the Lloyd was 60 miles an hour. It is not 60 miles an hour. Do you know how I became aware of that? Because an officer upheld the law and said, it's 50 miles an hour, here's your ticket. So how did I know the law? Because the law showed me my transgression. This is what Paul says here. How would I have known what sin was unless the law told me what it was? I wouldn't have known what coveting was unless the law told me what it was to covet. So that is what the law does in our life. As we look and we see, even just go to the Ten Commandments. Well, I've, I've broken that one, and yeah, I'm probably guilty of that. That's what it does. It doesn't, it's not a standard that you live up to. It's a standard that you see how you fail. So that you see your need for the blood of Jesus in your life. Your need for forgiveness. So the law is not sin, but it reveals sin in us. And the hard reality is that even as we become Christians, even as we follow, we still struggle in this life. And Paul explains this beautifully in Romans 7, 22-25. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man am I. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. We will still struggle. We will still face temptation. We will still face difficulty. But we cannot live as though that is our pattern of living. This is where we're going to end looking at the book of Romans for today. But in Romans chapter 8, we are not condemned, but are made more than conquerors through the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. And that's important because we can't uphold the law. The Spirit enables us to put to death the things of the flesh and to live according to God's will. Romans 8, 12 through 14 says this, So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if, this, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those led by God's Spirit are, are God's sons. So we see this here. This evidence of the Spirit in our life leads to knowledge and, and, and confidence in our salvation. The Spirit living within us is evidence of a saving faith because we are saved and filled with the Holy Spirit to live in obedience to God's will. This is the gospel. This is the good news of what Jesus has done for us, that we were sinners made right by the blood of Jesus, believing in that it really is that simple. Believing in Christ is what justifies us. But the evidence of that comes after. The filling of the Holy Spirit to do good things, to be obedient to God. The problem that we face, and I think that James faced at this time even, is that there's oftentimes the, the gospel gets watered down. And there's a problem with a watered down gospel. There are many ways that the gospel can be presented where information, important aspects of what it means to follow God, to follow Christ, are withheld. And maybe truth is present, but it's twisted and warped. 
And sometimes it gets twisted so much that we have to wonder if it's really the gospel. Now, now don't miss this. There's times where people may present the gospel in good faith, and Satan will seek to twist that to the hearer. They'll seek to, to confuse the person hearing the gospel. Then there's times where the person presenting the gospel knowingly distorts and changes things to make it, in their minds, more appealing to others. So what are some examples of this? I think the prosperity gospel is a, is a major evidence of a watered-down or modified altered gospel. It says, if you pray this prayer, God will bless you with money. And you may have heard, there's been some, some vocal critics in recent years of this idea of praying a prayer, the sinner's prayer. And this is where we get into some, some difficult weeds with this kind of stuff. How are we saved? By believing in Jesus, right? That's all it is. That's how we're justified. So how do you do that? What does Peter tell them to do at Pentecost? Repent and be baptized because of what you believe in Jesus, right? So you pray, you repent, you ask God to forgive you, to save you. It's a sinner's prayer. It's pretty biblical. But what happens if that gets modified and twisted? So the prosperity gospel, if you pray this prayer, God will bless you with money. When we water down the gospel, we change the gospel, there's often things that are added or changed about what the gospel is about. The gospel is about being reconciled to God, being forgiven for our sins, not something else. Yes, God blesses us with eternal life. God blesses us, takes care of us. God tells us not to be anxious. He'll meet our needs. But if we're presenting the gospel and telling it's because you'll, you'll become financially wealthy, that's not the gospel. That's what he says in Galatians when he talks to the Galatians. Who has bewitched you, you Galatians, that you believed another gospel? This other thing that you are being told you now have to do. At the time, it was this idea of upholding the full law, that they must convert fully to Judaism. That even then, adding this little thing, giving this little thing. What about the insurance policy? That, that watered-down gospel. If you are afraid to die, just pray this prayer. You're good to go. You don't have to worry about it anymore. If you want to make sure that, that when, when this life ends, you're good to go, just pray this prayer. What's the problem? There's truth there. We should be afraid of facing a God who is just in his wrath against the sin in our lives. We should be afraid of that. There's a healthy fear of God. But what's the problem? We have made praying a prayer a ritual and not about saving faith, believing in Jesus. This idea that if you're, if you're, you scare people to death, and if you're afraid, just pray this prayer, and then don't worry about it. You're good to go. It's like an insurance policy. You know how many times I look at my insurance policy throughout the month? Never, unless I need it, right? That's how many people treat their faith. That's how sometimes the, the, the faith in Christ is presented. Hey, pray this prayer. You're good to go. Tuck it in your back pocket. You get to heaven's gates. Hey, I prayed the prayer. I'm good to go. I never worried about it again. It's not the gospel. What did Jesus say to people? Leave everything you knew. Hey, you will face difficulty. There's a lot of things that are, are included in this following of Christ. How are we saved? Through faith in Jesus. But a lot comes after that. We can't remove that. We can't act like it's nothing. What about the ulterior motive? Have you ever had things added? Kind of, that's kind of like the prosperity gospel. One of the things that, that makes me nervous is when people 
can, can abuse the emotions of an emotional time to share the gospel in a way that's not fully teaching it. I think when we, when we have funerals, when we face those times in our life, it's a wonderful time where people evaluate their own mortality. But do you know what a, a terrible way to present the gospel is? If you want to see your loved one again, just pray this prayer. What has become the motive of crying out to God? Not forgiveness for my sins that I'm guilty of. I want to see my loved one again. Now, here's the deal. I, I think there is a good statement to say that we may see our loved ones again, whether we recognize them or not, whether or not. We're all going to be in heaven together worshiping God. And so any person that you know in Christ that has passed on, you'll be there with them. Your relationships won't be the same as they are now. I, I feel confident in saying that, but a lot of it's a mystery. But do you want a bad, a bad way to share the gospel is? If you want to see your loved one again, pray this prayer. You can use, that's, that's an important time to share it. Hey, they would want you to know. And if, if any of you are ever at, at my funeral, if, if that ever happens, please make sure they know that if there was anything I could say to them, trust Christ. Why not? So you can see me again, so that you can be justified before him, so that you can be forgiven for your sins. What is the focus on? The ulterior motive is a terrible way to share the gospel. There's another thing that, that, that's pretty common, too. The, the idea that we constantly are challenging people's salvation. One of the ways that, that a lot of you know, revivals may have taken place, that if you can't remember the day, the hour, the smell of the sanctuary, then you weren't really saved. I tell you, I don't remember exactly how old I was. I don't remember what day of the month it was. I was eight. But I do remember being convicted of my sin and knowing that Jesus was how I would be saved. And I tell you, there's been times through my life where I questioned, did I really believe? But do you know what I'm thankful for? I had people that were able to show me the way that God had worked in my life. So we don't try to share the gospel in a way to make people think that they haven't been saved. We help them to really work through that. Because the problem is there's people that, as we're getting through today, that may have believed in a way that wasn't true belief. You know how many people maybe went down because their sibling or, or a friend went down at a VBS and they just prayed the prayer to, to get through that conversation and it wasn't genuine. That happens. But we shouldn't call each other to question genuine belief in God. So what is saving faith? As we've gotten through this, I think it's pretty clear. It's more than simple cognitive belief because it's a belief that will result in action. James 2.19 says this, You believe that God is one, good, even the demons believe, and they shudder. And here's what I want to ask you today is, you may have gotten the truth about what, who God says he is, but has it gotten you? Has it gotten a hold of your life and transformed you? It's more than just a head knowledge. It's, you may have heard that. It's more than a head knowledge, a heart knowledge of who God is and what Jesus has done for you. But on the surface, it's, it's very similar to head knowledge. Head knowledge and heart knowledge look very similar at their inception, right? But how, how silly would that be for us to, to judge and question people's sincerity of belief upon their proclamation of it? It's like, yeah, well, well, Billy and Bob both came down 
and professed belief in Christ for the first time today. But you know what? I think Billy was genuine in his faith. I think he really got it. Bob wasn't crying as much. I don't think he figured it out. There's no way to know that. We can't see where people are in their life. We can't see whether they have genuine faith or whether they're doing something because they think it's what they're supposed to do. So how do we know? How do we know if it's true? We have to also ask the question, what is works? The actions we take. Works are the actions we take. Our attempts at obedience, and I say attempts because we fall short, seeking to fulfill the law on our own power. They cannot save us. Paul says his works were as filthy rags. But we also see they are expected for believers. And they show people the love of God. If you look in your bulletin this morning, you have a verse, Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Our good works point people to God. What they don't do have any bearing in our justification before God. We are saved by faith because of the blood of Jesus Christ. There's been this, and if you look at James, there appears to be this false dichotomy between faith and works. This, what that means is that there appears to be this idea that faith and works are somehow opposed to each other. They're in conflict. Well, I'm saved by faith. Well, I'm saved by works. This is really what James is saying. This is what Paul says as well, if you really look at it. James says, if you have faith, you will have works. If you don't have works, I don't believe your faith is real. That's what he's saying here. Is that a valid statement? I think it is. If I were to tell you today, I can dunk a basketball. What are you going to do? I sure would like to see that. We got a basketball goal right in there. Why don't you go do it? Well, I'm just not going to do it today. How long is it going to take before you don't believe me? Probably not very long. It's like the, the boy who cried wolf. Hey, there's this, this is happening. No, it's not. You don't believe it. There's no proof. There's no evidence. Works is the evidence of our salvation. So that's what James is saying. I will show you my faith by my works. But what does Paul say? This is where we get confused, I think. And it, it confused me when I first approached it. Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. That seems confusing there. Not from works? Well, James is saying works. What about what does that mean? There's another verse there in this thought from Paul. Ephesians 2.10. This was our VBS verse. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. For what? For good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. The, the works follows faith. If the works does not follow faith, there is genuine reason to be concerned about that faith. Is it real? Is there anything to it? Is it saving faith? Is it just, did you just put a presence on? Is it a facade? Is there anything there? Only God can know. Only God knows our heart. 
And we all struggle with sin. We all struggle in various ways. And sometimes you're more committed. Sometimes you're less committed to following. But if you have followed Christ, the Holy Spirit lives within you. And it's going to convict you of that. When you start to wander, you start to just say, I don't really care about going to church. I'm going to do what I want. If you're saved, guess what's going to happen? The Holy Spirit is going to convict you of that. And so if you look at your life and you prayed a prayer one time, and there's been nothing since then, no evidence of salvation. And I'll tell you, if you're here today, there's a little evidence. You're coming to church. It's important. But church attendance does not equal a changed heart. So the question we have to face is, have I been changed by the gospel? Is there evidence? Do, do the works of my life point people to God? Do they show a heart that's been changed? A heart that was going this direction and, and God said, God interrupted it and now I'm going this direction? The works don't save you. They don't do a thing except for prove the faith that you have. They show others and those others will see it and they'll glorify God. The, the, the scenario that we often talk about, we often hear, is that if you share the gospel with someone and they say, well, why would I believe? You're no different than me. That's a problem. The question should, the, it, it happens a lot, especially as a pastor. I don't always tell people I'm a pastor when I meet them because they act different. And, and that's a good thing. If people act different when you come around, that is in many ways a compliment because they see the evidence of your faith in your life. If people apologize to you, if they use a word that they maybe shouldn't have used, that means that they see in your life that you don't use those words. If they don't seem to care, that may be something we need to look at in our heart. And the, and the, the solution is one of two things, that your faith is genuine and you need to follow God like you ought to, or your faith was not genuine and you need to be saved. That's one of the two things. If we have faith in God, there should be evidence of that in our lives. Because if we believe in Christ, we trust in Him, we're changed. The Holy Spirit will lead us to follow Him. We are justified by faith in Christ, and this faith in Christ will result in works. So this morning, as, as we come to this time of invitation, I want to invite you to look at your life. Is there evidence of your salvation? Is there evidence of your faith in Christ? I really hope there is. I hope there's evidence that you realize what you've been saved from and you're seeking to follow him in obedience because you want to obey him out of love, not out of obligation, not out of trying to keep or earn your salvation, but because you want to, because you have been saved. And I'll go a step further. Is that evidence visible to others? It's not just within your own mind, within your own life. I can say, well, I used to be a little this way, now I'm a little that way. Is your evidence visible to others? I think it should be. Because Matthew said, we will, Jesus said in Matthew that they will see your good works, so it should be visible, and then they'll glorify your Father in heaven. You don't do good works for the acclaim, but if we're people that follow Christ, our good works should be evident in our lives. Or maybe this morning you have never placed your trust in Jesus. It's not about attending church. It's not about my parents raised me in church. It's about have you understood your sinfulness 
and cried out to him and asked him to forgive you for your sins. Because it is that simple. Jesus did the work. Everything is done. The, the price has been paid. And all you must do is believe in Jesus. Have you done that? Have you placed your faith in Christ? If you haven't this morning, there is not a better time than today. Let's stand as we go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for this day that you've given us, this time that we've been able to look at your word. And I pray that you would just help us to be so confident that our salvation is by the blood of Jesus alone, not by our works, not by anything that we've done. But God, I pray that you would convict us that if we've trust in Jesus, that our life is no longer ours, but it belongs to you. And that everything we do would be seeking to follow you in obedience. That our lives would be filled with good works that you prepared ahead of time for us to do. So that those we interact with would see your, those good works and would glorify you. Father, I pray that if anyone does not know you this morning, whether they've been in church for a long time, whether they've just been here today, they would lay aside any pride, anything that that would hinder them and would come to know you today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.